You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, and it's grisly and raining outside. And uh, of course, uh, the bite of COVID is increasing in Victoria. So it's all tremulous times. But uh, the things that have been uh, filling my um, days have been uh, a sort of a, a, a wash of uh, AUKUS commentary as well as the uh, big the biggest threat to national security and the world climate change and uh, of course there's uh, many people who are working very hard to not only raise awareness of these the climate emergency issue but uh, actually taking action and um, on the margins of this is of course the uh, election bleating. And um, so today there's a couple of things that I'm going to do. Uh, One of the things that was so fascinating about the AUKUS uh, announcements was that it took, even though uh, Morrison, Mighty Morrison, spent a lot of time talking about his Pacific neighbours or our Pacific neighbours, Pacific family. It was uh, quite contemptuous, really. And uh, in amongst the uh, various uh, um, uh, webinars, etc., that I was listening to over time, uh, there was a very fascinating thing to me, the voices coming from other parts of the world, uh, especially our parts of the world, in uh, relation to uh, and response to Australia's announcement about AUKUS, uh, the nuclear subs, and uh, their embeddedness with uh, uh, America and the English uh in a sort of a new bite of the cherry of uh, Western imperialism. And uh, so I've got, I'm going to start the program off with some voices from the Pacific. Uh, one is from Kiribati and uh, a small island nation and uh, a person who's an academic from the Philippines who uh, actually now resides in uh America, but uh, both of them are talking. We're talking at the Peace Network uh, webinar, and so that was their focus. But it, it was fascinating to hear from some people who 
apparently Morrison hasn't met in person. They're not necessarily uh, part of the Pacific family he's recognising. So we're going to have a listen to that. You would have, uh, there were some quotable quotes that came out of some of these webinars. One of them was, uh, one of the webinars about Hawkes was uh, an Indonesian uh, commentator who said that uh, apparently there's a hashtag that's trending in Indonesia, which is Australia is lying. <laughs> so if uh, there was a belief that uh, the announcements about AUKUS and uh, the chumming up with uh, America and uh, the UK over the nuclear subs um hasn't actually affected in a detrimental way our public image in the world, that should put an end to that idea. Um, another another kind of uh, quote that came out of the week was uh, a thing I think the, La- the Labor Party is running with, which is um, that uh, Mighty Morrison's not ambitious for Australia, but ambitious for himself. That's a quotable quote. And the other one that I quite liked came out of uh, Andrew Lee's discussions around uh, what's going on in the economy. He's the uh, Labor um, Shadow Minister for Economic Affairs, or it's probably got another name, but that's effectively what he is. And uh, I find him a fascinating character because he actually does the work. Um, he, he His little talk... Uh, from the Australia Institute was um, soft bigotry of low expectations. <laughs> I thought that that was a really uh, interesting uh, little quote. And obviously the thing that was really galling was uh, Bridget, Bridget uh, McKenzie, the uh, the National Party uh, member of uh, Cabinet uh, who uh, is whose name is besmirched forever by the sports rorts affair, um, actually being given some sort of uh, uh, credence by having a a major editorial in Murdoch's Australian, uh, apparently putting forward the position of the Nationals regarding climate uh emergency they they you know they want to sit on their hands because uh this this party which apparently is representing the people on the land who would be one would assume the closest to seeing how the climate is actually affecting them fires floods tornadoes there was a tornado in um uh um Armadale yesterday which was uh, a turn up for the books um the uh, uh, it has been uh, mooted for at least a decade, I think, that uh, the National Party is missing in action when it comes to actually representing uh, or the imagined farmer that's out there. It's uh, probably more in bed with corporations. But anyway, the idea that Bridget McKenzie should be given a platform of that sort to try and redeem her uh, scurrilous and uh, uh, outlandish behaviour uh, so far is pretty amazing. But 
the thing that really got my my goat this week was the um, drama, the whole media drama being set up, a publicity campaign, the drama, the drama of uh, the national liberals talking to the national party, having a, a, a you know deep seated discussion about how we're going to deal with uh, the climate and uh, how we're going to reach. Uh, 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 zero emissions by 2050, which is, uh, you've got to remember, 30 years away, which means that, of course, Morrison, mighty Morrison, won't have to take any, uh, won't have to look at it, uh, you know, because, you know, they can say 2050 and know perfectly well that they won't actually have to do anything about it because we're returning to the not ambitious for Australia, but ambitious for himself. And the beauty of it, this media campaign that we're, we're here hearing about the you know the drama the drama which is actually uh, diverting attention from the real climate emergency and the fact that uh we get these uh, paste-up pictures of Morrison, who's like this uh, a pop-up uh, stand-in from South Park. You know, he uh, first he's uh, um, off doing something, then he comes back and he's in uh, in quarantine. Then he's doing the drama of the discussions with. Uh, uh, the Nats, and now apparently he's already over in um, where is it? He's he's visiting the Queen. You know, unbelievable! What a man! What a man! Mighty Morrison, Super Morrison to the rescue! Anyway, so um, there we go. They reckon that uh, the election is coming and that uh, they're going to save us all with national security issues and the economy as the main game, despite the fact that the biggest threat to national security is climate emergencies. And uh, and uh, there you go. That's, that is probably as it is. And as I said, we're going to focus on some of the uh, issues coming out of the Pacific in response to AUKUS. Uh, we're going to uh, remind everybody that actually Friday was the uh, memorial for, uh, or the um, the day that the uh, Westgate Bridge fell down in 1970, killing 35 people. Uh most uh, grotesque um, industrial accident. And because of COVID, uh, we're breached sort of, it's the 51st anniversary of that disaster. And um, because of COVID, the poor fellows haven't been able to do a public memorial. But I thought we'd uh, revisit a conversation that uh, Marcus Harrington had with... Uh, Pat Preston, who was there on that day. Uh, so we'll do that at about eight. And, uh, of course, Kevin's going to go through the week as well. And uh, he's got a few other things to say. And as I said, we are leading to the election. And I didn't just listen to uh, pe what people's views were to uh, and campaigns that are happening um, with the uh, anti-nuclear and uh, peace movements uh convulsed by uh, the things that have been going on at the moment. Uh, it's, uh, t there is a renewal in the air. And, uh, but also the fact that uh, this week was the launch of the Victorian Greens um, federal election campaign. And we're going to hear from Janet Rice, Senator Janet, Ri Janet Rice, who gives a speech that uh, uh, reminisces 
goes over the fact that the Greens began 30 years ago and that they are hoping that they can, in this election, become the uh, get take the balance of power. That's that's their strategy. So that's what they're interested in. Anyway, I th- thought it would be interesting to hear it from her. And uh, we're going to end off with another uh, election hopeful. We're going to hear from uh, first up Ben Hillier. He's the um, editor of uh, Red Flag. Red Flag's really punching above its weight at the moment. And um, he does an introduction to Aaron uh, Melvaganen, who, uh, if you had ever listened to 3CR's Refugee Radio, you would have heard of Aaron. Aaron's an upstanding fellow, I have to say. Very smart, very courageous. Now, uh, Ben does an introduction to Aaron's uh, speech that he gave at... uh, a uh, Don't Deport to Danger campaign, which has been launched by the Tamil uh, Refugee Council because, of course, the national uh, liberal federal government, you know, they can't they can't uh, t- uh, stop uh, deporting uh, people, refugees, uh, as soon as they can because, you know, that's national sovereignty business, you know. As soon as COVID... Um, began to slacken, or as they saw it as being a, a slackening, they started to uh, deport people. But anyway, Aaron gave a speech at that particular event and Ben introduced him uh, and made everybody aware that uh, Aaron is actually putting his hat in the ring to go for the Senate. So that's the program for today. We'll have a, a little bit of a rest from me and uh, then we'll proceed. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. So now we have uh, Maria Timon Shifang. She is the Pacific Outreach Officer at the Edmund Rice Centre, Pacific Calling Partnership in Sydney, Australia. Maria? Merry greetings to you all. I'm grateful for the invitation to speak. I do recognize the Gadigal people owners of this territory. However, I'm a climate advocate, less experience in campaigning on militarism and peace building. I'm myself originally from Kiribati and I now reside in Australia. As a person from Kiribati, perhaps that's okay because just like the climate emergency, our discussion of August comes from colonizing colonizing attitudes, attitudes between peoples. The world's dominating powers just feel my community, my people, my nation, my culture as expandable. As it is for the climate emergency, 
so too for militarism and conflict. Again, the peoples and cultures of my region are just collateral damage to the greed and cultural narcissism of distant colonizing powers. It's not new. In 1943, we provided the battleground for conflict in the Second World War, the Battle of Tarawa. Fought between Japan and the US was one of the, the bloodiest battles of the Pacific War. Although our people did not create that war, many were killed, injured, mistreated, traumatized, and displaced from their homes. Sadly, a few years later, my nation, Kiribati, had a leading role in the development of nuclear weapons, together with other Pacific communities. It was a role we never wanted and to which we never gave our consent. In 1957 and 1958, the British colonizing powers used our Christmas Island for nuclear tests. In 1962, the US needed a new site for their tests. So the British volunteers volunteered a place, volunteered a place. Not County Surrey, not Land's End. Rather, the British offered my home to the US and they conducted more nuclear tests also on Kiribati, Christmas Island. I made a video call with my great uncle and we talked about Kiribati's disregard by colonizing powers and about the Second World War. And my uncle said, and I quote, we can't go back to straighten the past. Our people suffered a lot from colonization, but we can try and stop what is happening now in our world. We are fighting for our very own survival as a result of the climate. Now Australia decided to join August without even thinking of the consequences that our people are going to face and experience in the future. This is inhumanity. Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, often talks about national borders and security. How about permitting such concerns to the Pacific Islands? Where does our security lie? The Pacific Island nations are very concerned and are fearful of the Australian government's decision. August means the expenditure, the expenditure of billions. In my opinion, Australia, the UK, the, the, and the US should help the Pacific Islands to provide safe drinking water for our children because infant mortality rates are high due to the lack of clean water. The water problems are aggravated by both drought and rising sea levels caused by the, the emissions of these powerful nations. Their pollution kills our children. And yet they spend their wealth barely to help 
but rather on obscene weapons. To me, this decision is a disaster. It is going to create more problems and conflicts, which may lead to war. We don't want war. With New Zealand and Pacific Island nations, Australia is a party to the 1985 Treaty of Rarotonga, which established the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone, supposedly free of nuclear weapons. How will Australia comply with these under August? On the 23rd of December 2016, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted a resolution that led just six months later to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW. On that day, the General Assembly affirmed that this treaty should be a step towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. I'm very proud that Kiribati, my country, voted with other Pacific nations in favor of this resolution. I note the US voted against, the UK voted against, and Australia voted against. In December 2017, Kiribati was one of the first countries to sign the TPNW. And in September 2019, we ratified it. Still today, the US, the UK, and of course Australia stand in opposition to this UN treaty that lays the pathway forward to eliminate nuclear weapons. August is a further demonstration of this. Shame on them for their lack of leadership and ethics. We need an honest, an, an honest partnership and a strong, reliable relationship with developed countries like Australia. That relationship means inclusiveness, respect, consultation, dialogue, and morals. In my opinion, August is a, a disaster not just for the Pacific Island nations, but for the whole world. Before I finish, I want to bless each one of you with my Kiribati traditional blessings, which are the Maori, good health, joy, peace, and prosperity. Thank you and Kampasindaba for this opportunity. This is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. So our next speaker is uh, Walden Bellow. Uh, Walden is uh, well known to many. He's the recipient of the Right Livelihood Award in 2003 the chairperson of Laban Massa, excuse the pronunciation, in the Philippines, and currently a professor at the State University of New York in Binghamton. Is that, is that correct? Over to you, Walden. 
Okay, uh, yes, thank you very much. And I really learned a lot from the previous statements by our comrades from uh, the region. Um, I would just like to make a couple of points uh, here uh, where it's uh, seven o'clock in the morning. Um, first of all, uh, I think the uh, move, uh, the US, Australia, UK, uh, military alliance move um, represents a very significant escalation of the arms race in the Western Pacific region. Um, well, from my understanding, the reason that uh, Australia broke off the deal with France was because there was a concern that the conversion of the French subs uh, from diesel to nuclear power uh, was not something that um, was uh, very um, assuring to the Australian and U.S. Um, uh, military um, uh, um, specialists. So um, basically, I think this was really under pressure from the United States to um, have uh, a guaranteed process to move uh, from diesel uh, to nuclear. Now, nuclear-powered subs um, being provided to Australia is, I said, a significant escalation because nuclear subs are extremely quiet and uh, they would enable Australia to hunt down uh, Chinese submarines, which are quite noisy and are diesel submarines. So, uh, you know, in terms of the underwater arms race, uh, you know, this is what we're really talking about, a very significant escalation. The second thing is I think we need now to expect uh, a pattern very similar to the United States relation with the UK. Uh, first, the provision of nuclear powered submarines and then the provision of nuclear weapons uh, and, um, um, you know, possibly the provisions of strategic nuclear submarines uh, with um, uh, not only tactical nuclear weapons uh, for underwater fighting, but for strategic weapons uh, for targeting the Chinese uh, heartland. Uh, so um, this is a very momentous move uh, that uh, has occurred. Now, for the, we must really look at this from the perspective of the United States, um, political and military elite. Um, ever since the Obama period, they have been trying to get the focus of their force structure away from the Middle East, where they were being bogged down in endless wars that, you know, uh, was tapping uh, both the military capacity and the political will of the United States. And as people remember, there was this strategic shift of pivot to Asia under Obama. Uh, that was um, uh, not really decisively 
um, completed. Uh, but uh, this uh, uh, move uh, strategically accelerated under Trump, and now uh, it is uh, basically the focus of uh, Biden's uh, military uh, strategy. Now, the role of U.S. allies here uh, has become very important, uh, especially given the increasing isolation, a moral uh, and a diplomatic isolation of the United States um, in the global arena. Uh, so the U.S. has really been pressing the, um, uh, the U.K., uh, Australia, uh, and other and, and European allies, um, you know, that have military capacity, including the French, uh, to make a show of force in the Western Pacific, especially in the um, disputed um, uh, West Philippine Sea or South China Sea. Um, if people remember uh, during the um, summit. Uh, uh, a few months ago in 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 Cornwall, I believe the uh, um, right after the summit, the uh, um, Prince of Wales, the um, uh, HMS Prince of Wales, uh, sent down to make a show of the flag in the um, uh, South China Sea. So I think the use of allies uh, of the United States uh, will become more pronounced as the conflict with China escalates, uh, not on the Chinese side, but um, on the U.S. Uh, side. Now, um, this is, you know, um, what basically the Australian-U.S.-U.K. deal does is to accentuate the gap between the naval capabilities of China and the naval capabilities of the Western allies. As I have documented uh, in a number of writings, the Chinese Navy, while seemingly superior in terms of numbers, is actually qualitatively uh, very uh, inferior. Uh, when we're talking about ships, um, there's really no much for, you know, the strategic tactical superiority of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Um, and um, just looking at offensive weaponry, the U.S. has the state of the art, whereas the two or three Chinese aircraft carriers, which is very, very key in terms of offensive capabilities, are really built on Soviet-era Soviet designs that, you know, are uh, uh, about 25, 30 years uh, behind. Uh, and uh, China is not really uh, competing uh, uh, navally and militarily. Uh, of course, Chinese spending is up, but that is very different from engaging the U.S. in competition, which the Chinese know would be very difficult to do and would detract them from the focus they're putting on economic resources 
and economic diplomacy in order to uh, win the, uh, not win, but to match the United States in its, um, uh, in its um, uh, postures. Now, uh, this, I said that um, the Chinese, the capability of the, 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 the increasing um, um, gap between U.S. and allies and Chinese capability is very dangerous because what it does is that it creates the incentive for the U.S. to have a first strike nuclear and capabi- cap- uh, 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 conventional capability against uh, China. Um, and, um, you know, why? Because the bigger the gap, the more any kind of retaliatory strike on the part of China would be nullified. So basically what we're talking about is this deal uh, falls right into a very dangerous pattern that would really encourage the United States to engage in a first strike capability in the event of uh, conflict with China. Now, we must realize here that the U.S. Um, has not renounced um, first strike capability, uh, whereas China has uh, renounced this when it comes to uh, nuclear uh, 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 you know, competition. And incidentally, when it comes to nuclear competition, China's arsenal is very, very, very far behind. At the most, they have about 200 nuclear uh, uh, weapons that could be attached to ICBMs. So, you know, we're really talking about the U.S. maximizing its military advantage vis-a-vis China, and that uh, is very dangerous. Now, let me just end, therefore, by making some comments about Australia and the Asia-Pacific. You know, ever since the 1980s, Australia has been willingly performing this role of of regional gendarme for the United States, okay? And it has escalated its participation in U.S.-led uh, training activities, uh, military exercises. I know in the Philippines that the Australians are there all the time in U.S.-led military exercises um, and helping in training. So um, I think what what we have here is really um, you know uh, something that um, that uh, is very dangerous both from the point of view of Australia as well as the um, greater Pacific region. Uh, Let me just, uh, you know, stay here that um, um, this deal really accentuates um, and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Um, Here you have uh, not only a white um, alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance uh, of, you know, the, 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 the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together. Um, and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, 
at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples, this is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. Okay, And uh, so I think the U.S. and Australian elites racist um, 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 uh, military policies uh, are complementing the increasingly racist uh, domestic uh, policies, uh, you know. And, you know, as we know, the United States now is very polarized with the Republican Party, ex- uh, you know, uh, espousing, uh, um, you know, uh, white supremacy. Uh, and, uh, of course, in Australia, the government has come back to a hardline uh, white Australia uh, policy. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. Across Australia and around the world, we've seen reactionary right-wing mobilisations around anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown and anti-public health demands. In response to this, the campaign against racism and fascism have launched the campaign Pro-Vax, Pro-Union, Anti-Fascist to combat the far right and to fight for public health, safety and social solidarity. Go to www.calf.melbourne to join the fight for the safety of workers in the community and against the far right. A 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, uh, that last piece about the uh, pointing out the racist uh, heart of the AUKUS uh, deal uh, sends shivers down my spine when I heard it first said. Uh, and uh, the speaker, although an erudite person, was uh, fairly measured in his uh, uh, delivery until he came to this point and it became quite animated. So quite clearly the... Uh, view of uh, the Asia-Pacific region is that Australia's reputation is deeply damaged. Um, the uh, We're moving on now to the Westgate Bridge uh, disaster, which happened on uh, October the 15th, 1970. Uh, and uh, because of COVID, the 51th uh, anniversary... Our 51st anniversary <laughs> um, has to be delayed, of course. And um, I thought that it would be uh, remiss of me and the program not to uh, doff our hat uh, to those fallen comrades. And um, this is a, de- a chat that we, uh, Marcus Harrington had a couple of years ago with Pat Preston on this program about uh, the events that happened on that day. Yeah, we do. Uh, tomorrow marks 47 years to the day since Australia's worst industrial accident, accident a day. 35 young men went to work yet never arrived home. October 15, 1970, the day a span of Melbourne's Westgate Bridge, which was under construction at the time, collapsed. And this morning, uh, Pat Preston, who's a surviving Westgate uh, construction worker and now on the Westgate Bridge Memorial Committee, joins me on the line. Welcome to the program, Pat. Uh, good morning, Marcus. And Pat, so this this time 47 years ago, uh, you were a construction worker on the Westgate project. Um, what are your memories or what do you recall about that 
tragic day. Well, it was a it was a Thursday, uh, Marcus, um, back uh, a payday. Um, just you know, went to work just like uh, any other day. Didn't seem anything unusual about the day, other than a bit of a chill in the in the air. Um, I was a crane operator, uh, and uh, just getting on towards dinner time. It was uh, um, customary when I uh, on a small light mobile crane. Um, when I was uh, 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 near the steel spans to, to uh, drive down there and pick up a couple of the, the guys and run them up to the spotty hotel. It's, uh, things were different in those days on construction. Um, I, I'd parked my crane just uh, almost up, uh, alongside the, the steel spans, which would been, had been put up and uh, looked up on the lift up uh, Seen um, uh, my, my and Paddy Hannaby, one of the riggers, uh, and a couple others, and uh, engineer Ian Miller looking down uh, from the lift platform. Um, uh, and uh, suddenly there's this uh, very loud, um, well, it's hard to explain the noise, it was like a cracking and uh, <laughs> banging up uh, above me and um, looking up. Uh, see the, uh, the the bridge seemed to be moving, and then I realised what was happening. It started buckling and coming down, and I sort of got myself behind uh, the the rear wheels on the crane there, thinking, "Oh shit, <laughs> you know, better get away from this." Uh, whilst I was looking, uh, um, one of the guys who was on uh, the walkway to lift platform came flying down, uh, just uh, uh, past me. That was where um, a young carpenter, an uh, apprentice carpenter, who had sort of landed in the swamp. Um, from there, uh, well, you know, as you can imagine, it was a shock, and uh, uh, everything sort of went very quiet for a little while. You know, well, maybe only a second or two, it would seem like that, everything going quiet, and then, and then it, up were, you know, bangs and uh, noise and. Uh, and uh, that's uh, once you sort of get over the shock, it's in to see uh, what you can do. And had the workers uh, sensed there was something wrong on the project in the days prior? Uh, most certainly, look, it was only a couple of months before uh, when we had a mass meeting because we'd heard of the Milford Haven Bridge uh, collapsing in the UK. Uh, and... Uh, you know, we had meetings, discussions about it, and we ended up with engineers coming and telling us how safe the job was we were working on, and how it was a, a belts and braces type technique, and it was, we had nothing to worry about. Um, on the uh, just uh, a couple of, uh, well, just uh, just a week or so before uh, the collapse on a Sunday, I was on a job and finish. Uh, we used to have that sort of thing in those days on construction. On the crane, helping um, to derig uh, a crane just alongside uh, the steel span, so we have a, a 1,200-line crane, along with uh, a couple of the riggers who unfortunately came down on the, on the bridge, uh, and uh, uh, one of the foremen who had gone up to take some visitors onto the top. Um, and uh, when he came down, was talking to him down by the lift. 
uh, and you mentioned how uh, the steel was very hot and a bit of a bluey colour on it. Uh, at the time, didn't think anything of it, but uh, uh, there'd been a number of meetings over the safety of the bridge. So, you know, we were we put sort of trust in engineers, which uh, now I've learned you, know, you just don't trust no bastard. And um, how would you describe safety on the job in those days? I mean, today we have the consultation rights, the OHNS Act, safety committees exist uh, look, on work sites that was non-existent in those days. I was... uh, no, it wasn't. Look, uh, we. Uh, uh, Safety was ourselves. If we thought it was wrong, it was wrong, and uh, uh, we, you know, we blued about it. Uh, was all, we had stop work uh, meetings and uh, discussed and uh, the issues. And uh, but if there, if there was not safety as we know it now. Look, uh, what we uh, enjoy on construction now, I guess you could say, had a uh, had a. a a beginning uh, on what came out of the Westgate Bridge. I mean, we all learned lessons there. Uh, this is the, us, uh, the workers. Uh, we learned that, that uh, uh, not just to, to trust on face value what uh, uh, what bosses and engineers tell us. So we'll, we'll dig in and learn ourselves. And you said it was a Thursday payday. You were planning to catch up with your mates for a drink, obviously. Almost certainly. We were going to go down the road and have a beer at night time. Um, <laughs> Uh, 10, 10 to 12 on that day, everything changed. Um, and uh, when you look at uh, what happened, uh, it wasn't, uh, uh, it was a fault of uh, engineers and uh, uh, and bosses. And uh, you know, you look at the outcome of the Royal Commission uh, and what was said in the uh, Royal Commission. Uh, they said the disaster which occurred and the tragedy of the 35 deaths was utterly unnecessary, and it was utterly unnecessary. Uh, in fact, we said it, uh, you know, what, uh, what should have been allowed, uh, what uh, was allowed to happen was inexcusable, um, and it was. If uh, we uh, had have had uh, the, the safety... Uh, which we fought for, the acts and the legislation which came out there afterwards, uh, maybe it wouldn't have happened. But um, there again, you don't, you really don't know because uh, you still see those uh, terrible uh, accidents uh, um, on, on construction, uh, even now, collapses of various things. But if you have a look at what happened, um, we followed our uh, directions or the guys on top followed the directions uh when the spans were lifted the two uh, the two steel spans they um the camber uh, of one didn't match the other there was about four inches of um difference um and um they had uh, the engineers come up with a bright idea of uh, uh lifting um eight ton concrete uh, blocks uh, up to uh, to bring the the uh, the, the uh, bring them level. Uh, those concrete blocks happened to be on the job because they were being they'd been used uh, uh, as um, uh, guy uh, guy blocks for uh, in other parts of the job. Okay, and, and what's not? The... Sorry. Yep, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and what's not widely known was the uh, company's shameful treatment of the surviving workers in the days following the tragedy. Oh look, the, uh, there was uh, you know 
no follow-up uh, counselling and uh, uh, and uh, help, financial help, and things of that that, that, that we uh, enjoy uh, today, and, and what we enjoy today, we fought for. Uh, the, you know, your, you know, your loved one's dead. Uh, it was the, the workers uh, on the job who was left, and other building workers who were collected to assist them financially. Um, and compensation, um, well, compensation was almost non-existent. Um, what you what you got was a pittance, and uh, and you waited a long while for it. Um, in fact, uh, uh, there was uh, uh, debates in Parliament, and workers turned up in the gallery there to see that uh, uh, we did. There was was a proper compensation um, scheme coming out of it. And, uh, Pat, you went on to head the safety unit at the CFMEU. No doubt uh, your commitment to safety was inspired out of this catastrophe. Oh, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I guess you could say I learned lessons uh, then. I was only a youngster, and uh, you know, it's uh, 47 years ago now, but uh, you learn lessons. And uh, I, got, I uh, had a big interest in safety when we returned uh, to the job uh, um, once it restarted again. Um, we formed a safety committee on the job. Uh, the, uh, there was advisors from the National Safety Council, although I must say some of their advice is a lot to, uh, uh, when you think about what we know now, is a lot to be uh, desired. Um, but yes, I got an interest in safety, and uh, I might say it wasn't only the 33 who died on on that day, and the two who subsequently died in hospital, but there was also another fatality a year after we started back, and uh, where a worker uh, ended up falling off the force work, who or being knocked off the force work on the east side of the river. So it's claimed uh, it's claimed many lives, uh, and many lives of people who uh, suffered as a consequence of the of the collapse, uh, you know, who, uh, who died early in their thirties and. Uh, and um, the materials we used, people have lost their lives uh, due to the job, uh, such as asbestos uh, uh, being used widely um, to protect, supposedly to protect us, such as asbestos gloves, gaiters, uh, aprons for the boilermakers, um, lead and chromium used for the coating of the steel boxes. So there was a lot learnt uh, from the Westgate. Okay, and tomorrow, as we. As with each anniversary, uh, the commemoration service uh, will take place. Uh, would you like to give listeners the details, Pat? Yes, uh, look, every year, uh, uh, survivors, their families... And, and we have to leave it there because, of course, it's not going to happen tomorrow. And uh, that, of course, is uh, the um, the uh, Westgate Bridge uh, memorial that uh, will happen once the uh, COVID subsides. Uh, it was on Friday. Uh, that was the uh, date of the um, of the uh, 1970 disaster of the uh, Westgate Bridge. We'll have a bit of a, um, a memory of that event and move on to the present. A weak solidarity, Bricky team listener, when decades of cynicism and incredulity, of disbelief, dissipated. Suddenly, I believe in miracles, unreservedly. 
What else could explain Lord Rupert of Wapping's overnight conversion, atheistic denialist to religious believer? Lord Rupert the Greenie, leading the campaign day after day to address the very issue he has vociferously denied even exists. Lord Rupert the Greenie. Okay, one of the days was a huge spread advocating the virtues of nuclear. Nonsensical, nonsensical not to include uranium, nuclear, in the energy mix, surrendering to a rational activist. Dealing with the little problem of nuclear waste by suggesting it could be recycled. Recycle the radioactivity for a few thousand years. To add to the miracle, the Business Profits Council now preaches that what it told us yesterday would destroy the economy and life as we know it is now the saviour. And if that's not life-changing enough, Big Supremo Scuttle them more less son, a.k.a. Scummo, is about to announce a form of zero emissions by some time or other as long as it doesn't upset the Hayseed and Cheapshit Party, whose great advocate for the regions, Bridget McConnell is easy, as we reported last week, used a convoluted argument to declare why we couldn't afford to adopt a zero emissions target, and this week seemed to use the same convoluted argument to tell us how we could afford a zero emissions target which she could get away with, because in neither case did anyone have the slightest idea what she was talking about. And now that my cynicism, I can probably speak for all of us, our cynicism listener, has dissipated into that belief in miracles, then we wouldn't dream of asking Lord Rupert or the Prophet's Council or Scummo or Bridget or any of the converts whether a sudden realism that the do-nothing option could be even more costly than the end-of-the-world economy they were predicting just a week ago has anything to do with it. That hard as it is to believe, they now see more profit in the energy sources needed to prevent the planet from frying to death than in continuing to fry it to death while denying it is frying to death. Or in Lord Rupert's case, big advertisers seeing that. Or in Scummo's case, he sees himself becoming an international outlier, a pariah, requiring a real miracle, appease international criticism and appease the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party simultaneously. On that, a commentator through the week said Scummo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle were tossing around ideas, leaving us to play guess the odd one out. Scummo, Barnacle, Ideas. <laughs> Tough one. If we were cynical, which we're not, but let's just for the sake of argument suggest we might be, that cynicism may have been fueled by the witch bank, which used to be our bank, annual general meeting Wednesday, where it rejected a move by the environmental activist group Market Forces over accusations it was not cutting lending to fossils fast enough with chairperson Catherine Livingstone Greenies claiming the virtue of lending to fossils who are committed to transition to a cleaner economy. I suspect King O'Malley would be turning in his grave. The bank, Catherine said, will not resile from Paris commitments, but nor will we capitulate to the demands of climate agitators. Our philosophy overall is to support the transition, but to make it very science-based and data-based, not profit-based. Science-based profit and data-based profit. Climate science, climate data. More profit science, profit data. 
Right, but but a fossil's committed to transition. Now, wouldn't they indicate their commitment more not by mining and exporting more fossils, but by not mining and exporting any fossils? Not if you believe in the inalienable laws of profit science and profit data. Just think, if we still owned the witch bank, which used to be, it would cease supporting fossils immediately now that ScoMo has seen the light. Uh, well, except in the regions and... Oh, of course, that's where the fossils are. So, no, no, maybe it, it'd make no difference. So let's leave it to Catherine and the shareholders to save the planet, to not resile from our Paris commitments its way. The new converts all tell us the planet will be saved by market forces, the very market forces which created the threat in the first place. So it is with great confidence that we accept their prognostications and place our faith in them and their markets. Not that all fossils need a loan from the Witch Bank and the other banks balancing their books between our Paris commitments and a little profiteering. Take our second most filthy rich of the filthiest rich, Twitty, for us the profits, with his gas plants, accepting a $30 million handout from Fossils Minister Angus Tailings. What a kind gesture, because the second filthiest rich in the country needs every bit of public largesse he can get, like the 30 million topped up with another several million from the new New South Wales Supremo Dominic Perilous Tay, with Twitty announcing his Port Kemba plant would enjoy the wonders of green hydrogen, and Angus boasting it would show the wonders of his gas-led recovery, presuming a gas-led recovery from, from gas. It was wrong to call it gas, Twitty complained, looking a 30 million gift horse in the mouth. So what will it produce in export, Twitty? Uh, gas. Then Angus is correct. No, he has no right to call gas, gas. It's gas while we transform to beautiful, spectacularly profitable green hydrogen. Troubler was his number one filthiest rich, relegating poor Twitty into second place. Gina Nohart has also called for public largesse to assist farmers and graziers because solar and renewables are a costly exercise. Farmers will need government assistance. Our richest farming and mining person held out the begging bowl. And the good news is, Gina, the government can raise the funds for that public largesse for strugglers like you by introducing a carbon tax. When she recovered, well enough to speak, Gina pointed out the last thing market forces need is government intervention. Keep government out. Uh, but you just said you want them to give you a handout. Absolutely. And then get out of the way and leave the market and saving the world to us. What a wonderful, thoughtful, caring person, always putting herself last. Back to the witch bank which used to be, poor Catherine not only had to contend with bloody climate activists, but with the unfair work ombudsman charging it with underpaying staff at least $16 million. This after it admitted two years ago it had underpaid 41,000 staff $53 million. The ombudsman suggesting there was a problem with signing workers up to individual agreements the bank called individual flexibility arrangements and we know caring employers need flexibility which got rid of crippling work practices like rostered days off overtime pay annual leave loading guaranteed pay rises and maximum hours for goodness sake there's some uncommitted workers who might even want to go home at night all for a bit extra 
which the bank must have miscalculated as it cost the workers all those millions. Inadvertent, of course, although the bank would only pay top-up money if employees twigged and complained they were being paid sub-award rates. The bank, the ombudsman said, privately knew 10 years ago workers were not better off overall, but continued to make them obviously worse off overall. So poor Catherine had a lot on her plate this week. How did this happen, Catherine? Absolutely inadvertent. The award details are just so complicated. Uh, but, but, but you abolish the award uh, because it is so complicated and we inadvertently miscalculated. Uh, but, but, but you knew that at least 10 years ago. And we inadvertently forgot to correct it. We, we are busy people after all. The penalty is up to 660 grand per breach, but hopefully Catherine and the board can negotiate their way out of that one with some sort of flexibility agreement to match the inflexibility in workers' wages and conditions. Another fine example of the virtues, seeing we're on that theme today, of privatisation and the mutual benefits of workers' rights not to join a union. Those virtues also evident in the airline industry, speaking of contributions to frying the planet, with the airline which used to be our airline privatised by a socialist government because they claimed the public purse couldn't afford to own it. And thankfully, the public purse has only handed out so far $5 billion to the industry in the past year. And a caring business class government also privatised the major airports, providing a oh-so-lucrative monopoly with the privatised airline, which used to be complaining about the airports increasing their charges exorbitantly. But, but, but they're a monopoly. It's what they do. And everyone knows everything's so cheap at the airport. And the government regulator got really tough and pleaded with the airports not to increase their charges exorbitantly. Please? Please? again showing the virtues of privatisation. And we know the airlines themselves would never take advantage of certain high demand times to increase their charges exorbitantly. So let's hope the public largesse keeps flying in their direction. Very confusing, though, because the socialists privatised the airline which used to be to bring it to the, bring it the super-efficiency of the private sector, which the bloated head of the public purse couldn't match, Yet, when a rival airline was seeking the right to compete with the airline which used to be on the lucrative Pacific route, its supremo Alan Joystick said the other airline had an unfair advantage because it was state-owned. It's also confusing. Here we've fought the coronavirus by locking down as soon as even one case or maybe two or three turn up. Daily press briefings keeping us informed of how close we are getting back to zero and therefore able to get on with our lives. Thank goodness we're now so much more sophisticated that as we record the highest daily number of cases in True Blue Aussie and 11 deaths, we are assured this is exciting news, meaning we can open up as planned adding there is no doubt the numbers will then reach new records and the health system will be overwhelmed. A big win, a great win for the profit motive. Not quite so great for the record numbers of ill and dying. 
finally, one of the thinkers behind privatising the airline, which former world's greatest worst treasurer and big supremo Paul, talked about cozying up to former Indonesia and other people's business butcher Sahato in order to contain evil China, saying his interest in Indonesia in was sparked by reading about Sahato's coup and the slaughter of millions of mostly leftists. How Sahato had knocked over the Indonesia in Communist Party, Paul said. Unfortunately, in cozying up, Paul obviously didn't think it remotely worthwhile to raise the matter of slaughtering the left with his newfound diplomatic friend, with friends like. Good morning. Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. It's all rather chilling this morning, isn't it? Um, it goes with the rain and the weather. <laughs> uh, and uh, this is the last part of the program, and uh, we're going to uh, do a little bit of an inspection into the uh, a few voices leading up to the apparent federal election, some people saying early next year, uh, some people a bit more nervous about it, <laughs> uh, coming a bit earlier than that. So some people have um, put, put their hat in the ring and... And made it clear that they're on their way. And the uh, Victorian uh, Greens did their launch in the middle of the week. And um, I uh, wanted you to hear Senator Janet Rice, who uh, because it gives a historical perspective on the Greens and the way they see themselves in this um, upcoming election. So let's kick off with a bit from the estimable no esteemable Senator Janet Rice. Um, Next, we will be hearing from Senator Janet Rice, Um, originally from Miningai Birnong, or so-called Footscray. Janet is a trained climate scientist and has been an environmental activist for decades, and she's been involved in some of the most significant achievements of the early stages of the climate movement in Victoria. Janet was also one of the founding members of the Victorian Greens. So as one of only a few lucky enough to have been part of and to have seen the highs and the lows of the Greens journey for so long, it's only fitting that she take us through the story so far. So I'll now pass over to Janet so we can hear about the wins that have made us the Greens that we are today. Over to you, Janet. Thank you, Ash. And what an awesome event that we're at tonight with over 600 people here. It's just incredible. And my incredible colleague, force of nature, Lydia Thorpe, who we just heard from, so proud to have her as a colleague and Adam as our leader, We're just doing such great work. Um, I do, this is my cat, my cat Trieste, who of course knows that I'm speaking, so it's time to be on my shoulder. Um, <laughs> So I want to acknowledge that I'm here on Wurundjeri land and no matter where we are across this country, we are on First Nations stolen land. And I am so proud to be a part of a party that acknowledges that, that acknowledges the trauma that our First Nations peoples have been through, acknowledges the need for truth telling, for justice and for treaties. And I really, it's it's fantastic to have 20% of our party room now being First Nations women and to be part of a party that is committed to working for justice. We really have come so far as a party. I mean, what were you all doing 29 years ago 
In fact, I know a lot of you actually weren't even alive. I mean, October 1992, 29 years ago, it was just a month before the famous meeting under the trees in the Darling Garden in Clifton Hill, where we made the decision that yes, we were gonna form the Greens in Victoria. And at that time, as well as being one of the driving forces before, behind forming the Greens in Victoria, I was also a new parent. My eldest kid, John, he had just had his first birthday. So I've got a pretty good feeling for how far our party has come by how old my kids are. And I think that what we're capable of at what age, it's actually pretty similar to us humans. When our first elected representative in Victoria was elected, that was David Rispin, who was elected to the Melbourne City Council in 1999, we were still pretty young, but clearly showing a lot of potential and promise. And when Greg and Colleen and Sue, our first state MPs, were elected in 2006, we were teenagers. You know, we were capable of a lot, but we were still pretty wet behind the ears. And I remember after this 2000, uh, I remembered after this election in 2006, what one of the other founders of the Greens back in 1992, Peter Christoph, had said very early on. He'd said, he predicted, he's pretty good at predicting things. Some of you might know him as a Melbourne Uni academic. And so Peter said, he predicted that we would elect our first Greens MPs in 15 years and be in government in 30. So, yep, 2006, that was within 15 years. Tick, we were on track. And when Adam and Richard were elected to our federal parliament in 2010, we were 18 years old, the same age as Ash, our MC tonight. And we were really beginning to blossom into adulthood. I mean, think of the clean energy package the price on carbon, everything else we achieved with the balance of power, think of that as being like the achievements of those extraordinary young people powering the school strike for climate campaign. So 11 years on from that now, at 29, we are mature, we're wise, we're capable, and we are in the best place we have ever been before a federal election. And I know, because I've seen all of our federal election campaigns. I mean, in 2019, the last federal election, we ran a great campaign and we had a great result. I was re-elected, Adam was re-elected, Steph came really, really close in McNamara. All of our senators across the country were re-elected. But sadly, of course, as we know, the swing to Labor failed to materialise and our hopes of being in balance of power were dashed and we were all left bitterly disappointed. But resilient and determined to pick ourselves up and continue on because we have to. I mean, justice, equality, our future, they still need us. I mean, and basically the value proposition of our party that we are working with grassroots movements to be the voice in our parliaments for peace, for sustainability, for, for justice and participatory democracy. And that by winning seats in our parliaments, we can make and change laws for good that value proposition today is just as strong as it was 30 years ago. I mean, the country and the planet, it has suffered enough under the Morrison government. We have to have a change of government this time, please. I mean, the whole time I've been in the Senate that's been under the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government, it is way past time for a change. I mean, we can do it. We really can. And surely Morrison can't win again this time. I mean, with his climate and his COVID disasters, his rorts, his lack of integrity. 
And I'm just move the cat. <laughs> um, I mean, this year we are ready. We are set to be in balance of power, set to have three new senators being elected, to bring our numbers to 12 senators, which will make us the third, the, the biggest third party force in the history of the Senate ever. I mean, we only need Labor and Albanese to just limp over the line and we are gonna be there. And with Adam winning Melbourne, possibly Steph joining him, possibly others, I mean, then we will be able to push a Labor government to go further and faster on climate, on reducing inequality, on taxing billionaires rather than harassing people on JobSeeker, push them to have treaties with our First Nations peoples, push them to end corruption on accept more accepting more refugees. You name it, if we are there sharing power, we will be in such a powerful position to be pushing the government to do it. And we're on the cusp of doing it. We're launching this campaign and it is awesome and we're going to be able to do it. Incredible candidates all around the state. I really want to have a shout out to two in particular, Alex Marshall and Karangamite, Nalana Gallo-McCroskey and Goldstone, who are working like candidates right across the state, like the campaign teams right across the state, to be really working hard, to be flying the flag for the Greens, to be helping Lydia get re-elected and to be bringing ourselves closer and closer, to be really having the power that we know that we can have and that we need. I mean, we will be 30 years old as a party in Greens in Victoria. As I said, Peter Christoph, back in the early days, he predicted that we would be in government in 30 years. So uh, this election, 30 years, let's make being in shared power a reality. We can do it. We can all be playing our bit. Certainly one of the things you can do tonight is just throw in a few dollars in the bucket um, because it helps. We need the money. We need your support. We need everybody to be working together. We've got such a history over our 29 years of working together to be continuing to be building the party into the force that we are today. And I know that this election campaign is just going to be having us going from strength to strength. So thanks, everyone. It's so great to be part of such an awesome party and such an awesome campaign. Yeah, well, there you go. See, the Greens see themselves as being uh, the balance of power. Uh, interestingly enough, the uh, there was a fair amount of anti-Labor rhetoric in the actual uh, event uh, as well. Uh, interesting if uh, you're targeting the same um, seats as Labor in order to get um, into the Legislative Council expecting that Labor will also be a major player in the results of the election. So all very complicated, really. Uh, Great speech, though, and a great person. Um, uh, Interesting things to be thought about in regards to uh, the future of your vote. Um, But uh, to balance that particular speech, I've got this uh, piece from the... uh, uh, ben Hillier, who, as I said, is the editor of uh, Red Flag, which is uh, really punching above its weight at the moment. Uh, good, good, uh, good read and politically astute and uh, well, um, uh, good data collection as well. And uh, Aaron um, uh, Ben uh, puts forward uh, a, a, 
at this particular event, which was actually put on by the Tamil Refugee Council uh, in support of a campaign that they've uh, started called Don't uh, Deport to Danger, uh, ben took the opportunity to uh, talk about Aaron uh, Vagan and I always say he's, I'm not sure I've said his name correctly, but a great fellow who has also put his uh, hat in the ring to for the Senate this time around, a uh, socialist candidate. Um, it's just uh, interesting to hear what people have to say. I just want to make a short announcement, actually, about uh, Aaron Mulvagnum, the the last speaker. Um, those of you who were here from the beginning of the of the meeting will have seen that Aaron is running uh, for the Senate in the next federal election. Uh, and Aaron's the founder. I think I just said the founder of the Tamil Refugee Council. Uh, there, there's an abundance of a particular quality in politics uh, and in politicians in all the parliaments across Australia, federal. And state, and I feel compelled to say something about Aaron because it's a quality that he sorely lacks, and that's the capacity and the instinct for shameless self-promotion that is everywhere in politics. Aaron's uh, has many qualities, and that is not one of them. So I wanted to say a few things, uh, just because he's not going to say them himself. Uh, so just to, to give his campaign a little bit of a kick and some support, uh, Aaron's a, a very good friend of mine. So people might think that I'm biased in saying this, but he's a friend of mine because of the qualities uh, that I'm about to outline. And uh, and I think I, I have a bit of insight into them, having been uh, having worked alongside him for, for, for many years now. Aaron came here, as many of you will know, came here as an unaccompanied minor refugee when he was just 13 years old. He was locked up in Villawood Detention Centre by the Howard Liberal government then in, in, in the 1990s. And his story since, as uh, both a founder of the Tamil Refugee Council and as a union organiser, someone who has come out of that system and who has spent, you know, in, in the time that I've known him, every spare minute of his spare time and every part of his working life he has been fighting not simply for for refugees and refugee rights but also for everyone's rights uh, he, he's a fighter for the downtrodden the poor and the oppressed um, everyone here in his adopted country and I think that recommends him wonderfully uh, for someone to lead a campaign against the the you know all talk no walk politicians that, that dominate the political scene uh, the um, Barathan mentioned the, the book that I wrote. Aaron financed that book. Aaron has financed um, uh, so many things because it's not just that he is an activist. He has spent tens of thousands of dollars of his own money donating to refugee campaigns, to the workers' movement, not here in Australia, in India, in Sri Lanka. Uh, every bit of money that he gets, he's always looking to see who is who we who can give it to, to who, who's organising, how we can support the, the resistance, how we can support activism uh, at home and abroad. And that's exactly the sort of person who is often considered least qualified to be a politician because, as I say, they're the least self-promoting and most selfless. Whereas I think people that are the most selfless and the most activist inclined are actually the people that we should be supporting. And while Aaron has given so much of his time and energy and, you know, sometimes it's, you know, we, the middle of the night or the early hours of the morning, many times that I've spoken to him or seen him active from the middle of the day to the middle of the night, um, 
and, and spending all of his money. Uh, it's this at this moment. It's I think a time where Aaron is actually the one for a change who needs a bit of help here, uh, because he's not going to be able to do this alone. Uh, and it's it's a it's actually a massive task, and it's a lot of money. That the amount of money that is required to to make pro posters, leaflets for postage costs for T-shirts, for advertising to get his message out, and things like that, it is quite enormous. Uh, I know that lots and lots of people are really excited that Aaron is running. He's received so many messages of support, uh, and so he should because it, it's great that he's you know, sticking his head up and he's going to do even more campaigning to, you know, challenge the, the dominant narrative that we get during the federal, during federal elections. Um, but obviously it's great that he's getting support and it's obviously great that a lot of people want to vote for him, uh, but he's going to need, he's going to need money. He's going to need donations. So I really wanted to, to say if you've, if you've got some spare money, if you're looking for where you can put your money to a good cause, please donate generously to Aaron's campaign. It will be money well spent. It will be money to get his face and the face of the Tamil, the Tamil Refugee Council and refugee rights and workers' rights out there in the public domain as much as possible over the course of the next months or whenever the, whenever the election is called until, until polling day. So please give generously. Please find out more about his campaign. And remember, yes, good, good wishes are great. But the cold hard cash, as horrible is, as it is in politics, you know, he's, he is up against forces that have the mass backing of lots, of, lots and lots of corporate money who can drown out um, endlessly, and not just drown out, but drone out their competitors, both through their access to the, the corporate media and the radio and their seemingly inexhaustible supplies of money to send their own leaflets and pamphlets around. Well, he'll only ever get a fraction of that, but it's, it's through a grassroots campaign that hopefully um, if we all chip in and we all get behind him, we can put a little dent in the, in the difference between what he's going to have and what everybody else will and hopefully run a respectable campaign. So I implore you all to please donate. Please spread the message that Aaron is running and over the coming months, hopefully we'll all see and hear a little bit more and Aaron will promote himself a little bit more, but not just for the sake of promoting himself, of course, but for the sake of promoting the ideas, the ideas that refugees should be released, the ideas that society should be run for the interests of human need, not for the corporate profits of the people at the top, that we should have a humane and generous and decent society, not the dog-eat-dog -dog one, uh, which is the direction that Australian politics and Australian society is being taken under the guidance of the, the current political establishment. Our next speaker, who will be Aaron Malvarganam. Aaron is a long-term activist for refugee rights, and he's a member of the Tamil Refugee Council, where he's led the campaign to bring the Tamil family Priya, Nades, Kopaka and Tharanika home to Bilawila. He's also a socialist and a union organiser. He's been pre-selected by the Victorian Socialists as a candidate for the Senate. Take it away, Aaron. Thanks, Barrowden. Over the last three years, we witnessed the barbaric treatment of Nadesalingam family. During this period, we also witnessed solidarity and mass mobilizations led by uh, Bilawila people, uh, which ensured this family's deportation is temporarily stopped. While the 
immigration minister uh, used the youngest child to deny the family an opportunity to return to Bilovila, one-year extension on the bridging visa will not stop this family from being deported back. It is the legal avenues and the mass public support um, uh, uh, helping the family to stay here out of danger. Australian government has spent so much money waging propaganda war on this family, spreading lies about why they came here uh, and you know, why uh, they have made it sure that they're still committed to deporting this family. Korea Nade's are the sort of people you would want to give protection visas to. Nade's led political campaigns against the Sri Lankan state through his involvement with the Tamil Tigers, who fought against state-sponsored terror and genocide. He fled the country after harassment from Sri Lanka's intelligence. Puriya fled the country after witnessing the murder of her fiance. Rather than being granted uh, with the protection visa, this family was taken back into detention. And that happened because of a system set up to punish people who arrived at this country by board, a system that can't be challenged in our courts. One way that the government has set up the process to fail refugees is the DFAT country report, which is used to assess protection claims. And it's not just for Tamils. Over the last 20 years, while our government uh, sponsored uh, a war in Afghanistan in which hundreds of thousands of people were murdered while so many Afghans were getting um, murdered by Taliban as well and other extremist groups, such as the Australian governments over the, the last 20 years led by liberals and labor, knowingly sent back Afghan refugees to their death. And this is uh, based on uh, the, the DFAT report. In the case of Tamils, a UK tribunal recently found that the DFAT report doesn't reflect the reality for Tamils in Sri Lanka. Since the report was written, human rights situation in the country has deteriorated over the last two years to the point where the, the Gotabaya Rajabaksha regime that murdered over 100,000 Tamils in 2009 is the president now. He has restarted white man abductions, continues with torture, arbitrary arrests, and arbitrary detentions. This country report deliberately returned to undermine the, the reality in the country. It's inaccurate, out of date. This report is being used to decide on people's fate. We, in, in Tamil's case, 92% of the time uh, puts people at immediate risk of deportation. Currently, there are over 30,000 refugees, many are families living in fear of being deported back. Even those who have been granted uh, temporary protection visas will also have to live with the reality that they could be sent back in the not too distant future. Many who have exhausted their options have gone into hiding. Australian government, led by Scott Morrison and the, and, the, and the rest will do anything to go ahead 
with deportations of these people. Last month, a Tamil man in his uh, 40s was deported back despite being admitted in hospital for heart attack. As people, for everyday Australians, it is not in our interest to see refugees being deported back. Successive Australian governments have used refugees to promote racism and nationalism. They have used refugees to uh, distract us from the economic and social crisis caused by their decisions that gives importance to profit rather than people. These deportations happened because our government wants to maintain a migration program that works for them, not for the rest of us. They want to ensure they have a pool of workers who are left in a desperate situation, who live in fear, willing to work for whatever conditions offered to them. To maintain this, our politicians ensure that we don't unite with these refugees. Only way we can stop these deportations is by building a force that can uh, respond whenever refugees are at risk of deportation. We should draw lessons from past actions that successfully stop deportations. This year on 13th of May in Glasgow, a mass action was organized um, uh, to stop the deportation of two Indian men. When two Indian men were picked up by UK's home office in Glasgow, the detention van was surrounded by neighbors. One even uh, lied under it. Within two hours of uh, these neighbors surrounding the van, hundreds of people uh, uh, hundreds of people were mobilized and they all surrounded the van. After eight hours of standoff with the police, after protesters uh, shouting chants like, let them go, these are our neighbors, both men were released. This is the sort of uh, power people have. This is the sort of power we should employ when refugees are being picked up for deportations. This is the type of mass action that can achieve victories and challenge Australia's racist refugee policies. In Australia, cruelty towards refugees is bipartisan. Electoral system has only helped us shift blame from one political party to another. One thing that has been obvious uh, over the last 20 years is that none of the major political parties, whether it's Liberals or Labour, care about refugees, and none of them will offer us any solution to our problems. None of the institutions in the control of these political parties are going to lead the change either. We must look beyond them and organize. Thank you. Under the blue moon I saw you so soon
open your arms to You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.